Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. The word I got, and it just, I've been meditating on it, and um, was Emmanuel. Which means, it's, it's what the, um, the angel Gabriel spoke to um, uh, Joseph when um, he came. And before we get too far into it, let's go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to um, start in verse 18. But verse 1 through 17, or, or yeah, 1 through 17 is a genealogy, which I don't know about you, but you know, I used to follow uh, very closely Bible reading plans, and I had, you know, I was going to read through the Bible in a year, and those are tough. I mean, it's just the discipline of reading your Bible, reading the Word every day. Sometimes it gets tough, but man, when you hit early on, you hit Leviticus with all the begats. <laughs> it was like, wow, I just soon have. Uh, bamboo slid up under my fingernails as to have to read through this. But those are important. This is particularly important because Matthew gives us a different, slightly different genealogy than Luke's account because Matthew's account gives us the genealogy of Jesus through his father Joseph's side. And I use that term because Joseph was the father of Jesus. Now, he wasn't his natural father. He didn't contribute any DNA. Mary, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. But we've dealt with in the last few months the, the, the whole Roman concept of adoption. Well, Jesus was adopted by Joseph. And that does not make him any less the father of Jesus. In fact, if anything, it, 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 I'm more impressed with Joseph, especially this passage, because he, Joseph so identified with being the father of Jesus that he gave him his genealogy. And Jesus had no genealogy as a man. Now, he had Mary's genealogy because she, she did contribute physically. She contributed an egg. But... The rest of, of Joseph's or of, of Jesus' physical body was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He had no natural father. But in, in verse 18, this is the situation that Joseph found himself. He was in love, loves Mary. He's, he's proposed to her there. They have in the Jewish custom of the day, you propose and, and it's accepted by the father or by the, the father of the bride, and you go through this very elaborate ceremony, and they drink a cup of covenant. There is a marriage cup that's drank before the, the marriage, which was going, the marriage ceremony is going to be months later, uh, before it ever happens, and you are considered to be married. You haven't consummated the marriage, but you are married. And during this period of time, Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant. By law, Joseph had the right to drag her into the public square, declare her a prostitute, pick up a stone, ask people to join him, stone her to death. 
But that's not the attitude Joseph has. So let's start in verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now put yourself in Joseph's place. You've just found out your girlfriend's pregnant and you know it's not yours. And not an easy situation to be. But verse 19 shows the character of Joseph. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make a public example, stone her to death, was minded to put her away secretly. I think a better translation there is quietly. We're not going to make a big deal out of this. I'm just going to let her go away. And, you know, that used to be the custom years ago before having children out of wedlock just became next to nothing. You know, the, the order used to be you get married, you have children. Now it's you get married and maybe we'll have kids, maybe not. Or maybe we'll have, uh, excuse me. The custom now is to have children, and then maybe we'll get married, but, you know, probably not. But back in the day, a lot of girls, they got sent away. They get pregnant out of wedlock. You go to an aunt, uncle, you go somewhere else. You have the child. You put it up for adoption. You just don't let anybody know. And then you come back and resume your life. That's what Joseph was thinking. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord, this is the angel Gabriel, appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and this is a quote of, of Isaiah 7:14, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. That's this, God with us. That's what we're looking at this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but this is the Christmas season, and, and I, I know Christmas, Jesus was not born in December. He was probably born around Easter when it was warmer. Um, certainly didn't have a Christmas tree. You know, it was just way too cold for the shepherds to be out at Christmas time. But that's not my memories. That may be reality. But for me, Jesus and Christmas and, and, and Jesus' birth is today is associated with December 25th. We have originally December 25th was co-opted to, to redeem a pagan holiday. Well, we've thoroughly done that. Nobody thinks of Saturnalius when they think of December 25th. You, you know, nobody thinks of, well, this is a winter solstice celebration because, you know, the days keep getting shorter. They may just keep getting shorter and the whole world's going to freeze and we're all going to die. Well, that's where the pagans centered around this. But we have, Christianity has totally taken over Christmas to where the Christmas tree is no longer a pagan symbol. It, it, people just think they associate this with, with Christ. Now, I realize it's totally commercialized today, and Santa Claus was an invention of, um, the day Santa Claus was an invention of the Coca-Cola company back in the 30s. 
<clears throat> but at least Santa was based on St. Nicholas, who was a Turkish monk priest who, in Christian charity, took poor children and went and gave them gifts around to mimic the wives' men giving gifts to um, the baby Jesus. So, with all of that in mind, I realize it's not the actual birth of Christ. When I think of Emmanuel, when I think of Christmas, in my mind, always brings back, for me, childhood memories. I think for a lot of people it does. Why? Because in childhood, there's, a, there's a, a state of innocence. I didn't have to worry about bills. I didn't have to worry about problems. I didn't have to worry about anything. I just got up, ate breakfast, and I assumed that breakfast will be there. When I went to my closet, I assumed that uh, clothes would be there. And when Christmas morning came, I knew for me, and this is one of them I remember vividly, I remember there was going to be a Steve Canyon helmet under that tree. And if you don't know what a Steve Canyon helmet is, I'm sorry, you're just too young. You don't, you know, you need to get on Google and look it up. I mean, it was, in the day, it was, it was as cool as a functioning lightsaber would be under a Christmas tree today. And, oh, I wanted one. And it wasn't just a helmet. It was a jet fighter helmet. Which, you know, what's a jet fighter helmet? I don't know, but Steve Canyon flew jets, and, man, he was cool. And I wanted one, and I got one. That's that kind of of memories associated with Christmas. Or watching It's a Wonderful Life. And especially the more, as my daughter got older and hated the movie more, the more I wanted to watch it. I'd, instead of watching it once a season, I'd watch it three or four times just to drive her crazy. And, and, or watching A Christmas Carol. Not the new modern ones where they've just fouled it up, but watching the 1938 version that had um, uh, Reginald Owen as Scrooge and Terry um, Kilburn, I think, is Tiny Tim. That's Christmas, all right? But for me, that's me personally. But for most people, when you think of Christmas, they think of Christmas, you're thinking of the baby in the manger. You're thinking of the wise men, even though the wise men didn't come to Bethlehem and visit Jesus. And that's a whole other sermon, but... You know, if you, if you want to know, ask me later. I don't have time to explain that one. But what I want to look at today, what I want to examine, and this is our question. When, when Gabriel came as God's mouthpiece and spoke to Joseph and said, I want you to call his name Emmanuel because he represents God with us. What did God have in his mind? It invokes all kinds of, of, of um, memories for me. But what was God thinking of when he said this? Because, you know, it, it, there had to be a reason. God just doesn't do things haphazardly. So what was God thinking? Chapter 1 of Isaiah. Let's, let's go back to Isaiah real quick. And we're going to stay there for a little while. Isaiah lived... About 700 years after the Exodus. So this has been a long time since they came out of Egypt. And God promised when they came out of Egypt, I'm going to take you into a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, in Isaiah's time, ain't much milk and honey. It's hard times. The northern, the kingdom's already been split. The northern kingdom partly in exile 
They've got a client king and Judah, where Isaiah ministered to the kings of Judah, is under threat. And the first six chapters of Isaiah are filled with rebuke and with promises, which is unique to God. God will smack you and promise you the moon at the same time. He'll correct you. Now, maybe you all might be like my wife. God corrects her. It's a very gentle voice. When God corrects me, he's got his finger out. He's stern. He said, it'll shape up, bud. Listen up. And, and he makes a strong point. Why? Because I'm like my father's proverbial mule. You've got to hit me in the head with a two-by-four to get my attention before I hear anything. But every time in the Bible, especially here in the first six chapters of Isaiah, when God rebukes the people, he turns around at the same time. He says, now, just listen, and I'll show you what I'm going to give you. I want to bless you, but you're just messing up. And then he'll go through and he'll give us promises. The first one I want to look at here is in Isaiah chapter 9. It's this concept of the remnant. In Isaiah chapter 1 verse 9, he says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we had, would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. He just looked at the nation of Israel, his chosen people, and he said, if I was really just operating in my law, my justice, you'd be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You'd be a smoldering ruin right now. But I've got a remnant. I got a little group of people that, are, that have not bowed their knee. They're faithful. And because of the faithful, there are some good things coming. Now, I'm not going to go through all of... Um, um, those first six chapters, it's a good one to study out if you've got time sometime, but we don't have time to deal with it this morning. But over in chapter six, this is, this is Isaiah's first encounter, real encounter with God. This is the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah started his ministry, his prophetic ministry with Uzziah, and he was probably a very young man lived probably in his 70s or 80s. You know, it's hard to tell with, tell with biblical timelines. But this is where Isaiah got his start. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. That's Isaiah's first encounter with God, is he sees him in his glory, in heaven. Now, if that doesn't get your attention, you know, we need more than a two by four. And then <clears throat> drop down to verse four. In verse four, he says, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. When God speaks, things happen. And the house was filled with smoke. That represents the anointing. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. That, that has reference to Isaiah needed to change his shorts. You know, the Bible's pretty graphic when you read it truly. Doesn't mean he just was scared. That means, I, can I have a moment and go change clothes here and get cleaned up? Because you just scared the bejesus out of me. 
And he says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see Jesus, when you see God the Father in all his glory, it's, it's a scary thing. It's, it can be a terrifying thing. And then drop down to verse 8. He said, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. God made a call. The first time he pulled Isaiah up into heaven, showed him his throne, and he said, look, Isaiah, I know you're a man of unclean lips. You're, filled, you're in a tribe. You're in a society where everybody's screwed up. Everybody's saying the wrong things. Sin is rampant. But I need somebody to send, to represent me, to represent us, the Godhead, the Trinity. And Isaiah didn't hesitate. There's nothing in between there. The, the impression here is Isaiah stood up as scared as he was and he said, I'm right cheer. Send me. I volunteer. That tells you a little bit about the character. And then God goes through and, and we're not going to read 9 through 12. It's, again, these are some rebukes. But in verse 13, he makes this promise about the remnant. He said, and yet a tenth will be in it, and I will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. He's telling Isaiah, look, there's judgment coming. You all are all, you've, you've watched us, um, Israel headquartered in Samaria. You've watched them go into captivity partially. They have a client king right now. They're really being ruled from Assyria. But I'm telling you, you're all gone. Not going to happen today, but it is going to happen. But don't get concerned. I have a remnant and it's going to be like a tree stump. Have you ever had a tree that you just wanted to kill out in your yard and you cut it down and you grind the stump down and every time you turn around, you got those little suckers, the little shoots, the thing, you can't kill it. It just keeps coming back and keeps coming back and keeps coming back. That's God's remnant. God says, I'm going to judge this nation. Specifically, I'm going to judge you because you haven't kept the Sabbath rest for the land. So you're going to go off to Babylon for 70 years and we're going to give the land a rest. But then I'm bringing you back and my remnant is coming back. Amen. And then in, in chapter seven, he gets down to business. Verse one. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Razan, king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. In other words, they're shaking. All of Assyria is camped just down the road, and they're coming after us. What's the Lord do? He said, Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, the king. You and Shirjashub. Shir Jasub was his son. Literally, that means a remnant shall return. That I want you to, first of all, I want you to name your son 
Just thank, be thankful that your dad didn't read this portion before they went to the naming ceremony. And your name's not Sheer Jashem or Sheer Jashub. But he literally named his son, a remnant will come or return. But he said, take that son with you when you meet Ahaz and when you introduce him, your son's going to stand there and he's going to be a physical representation that while I'm judging you, don't be afraid. It's not over. He said, go down to the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed and be quiet. In other words, he, he, he's kind of had the ministry of, um, oh, I've lost it. One of Paul's disciples in, um, in the New Testament, his, his, doesn't matter who it was, but his sermon title, every sermon he ever preached was sit down, shut up and listen. And this is what God just said. Take heed and be quiet. That's a loose translation. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands. He's saying, basically, you see this big army? They're just barely burning and I'm about to put them out. Don't be afraid of them. For the fierce anger of Rezin of Syria, the son of Ramallah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramallah have plotted evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God's saying, I know they're big, I know they're strong, but don't you dare fear them. Because they will not stand, and what they're declaring will not come to pass. Gina and I, on the way home from, from Arkansas, well, I want to say yesterday because it ended yesterday, but it was really Friday. We, we listened to a, a, a sermon by John Gray and basically the one line in there, he was talking about God healing and God's promise of healing. And his, his catchphrase was not right now and not from this. Talking about dying. I'm not going to die today and I'm not going to die from this. And this is the response we have to have when, when the enemy attacks us. That's what Isaiah is telling King Ahaz. You're not going to be destroyed from this and it's not going to happen today. Get out of fear. And then verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus. The head of Damascus is Raisin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. And this is the key. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. That in the Hebrew, that's a play on words. Basically, the Hebrew there says, amen, amen. Meaning, and you have to look at the stems, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I can read after Hebrew scholars. It's the same word, but it has two different stems. The first one is a causative stem. It means, Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. I want you to declare what I just said. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. You'd make a positive declaration. You believe it, and I will follow your amen with my amen. I've given you a word. Agree with me. And if you'll agree with me, I'll agree with you. And then you're going to see something. That's the whole Christian walk right there. God says, this is how it is. We say amen, and he says amen. 
and then it happens. Well, but I've said amen before and I didn't see it happen. He said right here, if you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. Did you really say amen? Or were you quaking in fear and you went through the words, but your heart was not in it? Now, that doesn't mean that just because you're quaking in fear. I've told the story about last year. We just had this, the, the anniversary on our trip way down to Texas, the day Gina dropped dead. It's been a rough year since then. But believe me, when, when I f first got to see her, actually the first time I saw her, she was laying nude, completely undressed, out in the middle of a bathroom in a restaurant and had total strangers surrounding her, doing CPR, shocking her. Believe me, I was terrified. But I knew there was something on the inside of me and said, you, you better not display the fear. You better get in faith and you better get in faith right now. It took everything in me, but I, and it, she, she tells a story like I yelled it. For me, it was a yell. If you were three feet from me, you probably wouldn't have heard because I could barely talk. But I pointed to her and I said, you will not die today. That was my amen. That was, my, God had already given me uh, the verse in Psalms. She will live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. God gave me that going to the restaurant. Got to the emergency room. I saw him bring her in the back. I asked the doctor, I said, can I come back? He said, no, can't go in that room right now. We're working on her. That's not good when the doctor says, no, we don't want you in the ER. I got a minute with her and they said, you take all the time you want. They had already given up. Now her doctor didn't, but all of the EMTs, it's like you take all the time you want and talk to her. Why? It's maybe the last time you ever see your wife alive. And I just leaned over, whispered in the ear. I said, you shall not die today. Not today and not from this. Uh-uh. Did I feel it? Nope. But I knew what God said. And I was going to amen what God said. And thank God, God amen my amen. Long story short, three months later, a doctor looks at her in amazement and says, I can't believe it. You have no brain damage. You have no heart damage. You're perfectly healthy. This never happens. This is a miracle. And it's like, well, when you say amen and God says amen, that's all it takes. But here we, we've got Isaiah speaking to Ahaz and he's saying, look, just get in agreement with me. Verse 10, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. You ask something, I don't care how big, I don't care what you ask. But you ask for me a sign. So you will know that this is what's going to happen. And Ahaz makes a statement, and I'll be honest with you. When I read this, I think of Jesus up on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Or not Transfiguration, he was out on, in the wilderness. And Satan comes and says... You know, just cast yourself down from here. Because Psalm 91 says the angels will bear you up on their wings. And Jesus said, I'm not going to test God. Well, what's Ahaz say? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Sounds pretty good to me. But then what's God's response to him? Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Isaiah looks at him, he said, God just told you to ask for a sign. Who in the world do you think you are to say no? You don't want to ask one? I'll give you one. 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's what Gabriel quoted to Joseph to tell Joseph, look, I know she's pregnant. I know you haven't had relations with her, but I'm telling you, this is God. This is God. Hang tight, man. And when that boy is born, you name him Emmanuel. You name him Jesus. Why? Because God is coming to visit us physically in the earth. Now, we're still there in Isaiah. Flip over to chapter 10. This is the, the summation of all of it. This is summation of all of the uh, Bible. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 27. And I like the King James. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day, that is his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder and his yoke from off your neck. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. Literally, the Hebrews there says, because of the grease. It's the anointing oil. When, they, when, when anything happened in Israel, when they crowned a new king, when they had a new, new priesthood come in, if, if God said, go anoint this prophet, when he told Samuel, I want you to go find David, what did, they, what did he do? Now today you come out and ask us to anoint you with oil. We'll take a little oil. We'll put it on your finger. We'll make the sign of the cross. You want to do it biblical? You take a flask of oil and you just upend it on their head and you pour it out and it runs down. Why? Because it's the, it represents the anointing. It starts at your head and it covers every bit of you. And it doesn't just get on your clothes. It gets in you. And that anointing will break the yoke of the enemy. What Isaiah is telling here, what God is saying through Isaiah in, in, in chapter 10, verse 27, it's my anointing. I'm going to impregnate a virgin and she's going to give birth to a child and he's going to bring the Godhead into the earth and the anointing on that man is going to break the yoke of the enemy in every area of your life, past, present, future, doesn't matter. They're all going to get broken because of the anointing. Now, the question for us, what does that mean? I told you, when I see, you know, Emmanuel, I think of Christmas, I go back to my childhood and I get, you know, pleasant things. I know a lot of people, their, their childhood memories of Christmas are not very pleasant. But what does it mean to us? When God told Joseph through Gabriel, you name him Emmanuel. I don't think God had envisioned this little baby, although Jesus was a baby. What God had in, in, in his mind was the grown man Jesus facing down Satan in the, in the wilderness and all of the temptations. Facing and, and proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming all of the Old Testament in the temple to anybody who would stand still, declaring himself and saying, I am God incarnate. And then proving it, not by the miracles he did. Keep in mind, and I don't have time to go establish this, but you can look at it. Jesus did not do one miracle that hadn't already been done by some other prophet during, in the Old Testament. Paul says it in Romans. He said, Jesus was established as God by raising from the dead. That no one had ever done. Now, they'd been raised from the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead.
It was not uncommon to have people raised from the dead. Well, it was uncommon, not unheard of. But no one had gone into to death, taken on the sins of the world, and when those sins were paid for, said, that's it, I'm done, I'm coming out. You might have somebody else speak to you and you come out of the grave, but nobody went in and decided, okay, I'm done. I've paid the price. I'm out of here. He had that power. It was the anointing on him. The presence of God. Because he, not only because he was God, he was the second person of the Godhead. But Paul tells us in the epistles that he set all of that aside. He made of himself of no reputation. He took on himself the form of, of a man and did everything he did empowered of the Holy Spirit. That's why his first miracle happened at Canaan, turning the, the water into wine. Why? Because before that, he had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And before he was baptized in the Holy Spirit and took on that outward anointing of the Holy Spirit, he couldn't do miracles because he couldn't do them as a second person of the Godhead. He did them as a man anointed by the third person of the Godhead. Once he was anointed by the third person of the Godhead, he did some miracles. The greatest of which was coming out of the grave. And going and being seated at the right hand of God and then telling the Holy Spirit, okay, the same way you anointed me... Go down and anoint my people. We're going to make a new man. We're going to take Jew and Gentile, marry them into a brand new man. And that new man is going to go out and spread the gospel. And we're going to change the world. And now we're in the last days. And God, when he spoke that to Joseph, he had one thing in mind. Conflict. I know this. You're going to have a baby boy born here. But remember, he was born into conflict. One of the very first things, and it's the reason I said the, the wise men probably did not go see Jesus when he was in the manger. And I know we have manger scenes and we have the wise men. I've got one at home. It's just historically inaccurate. The wise men would have seen the star, but they didn't catch an airplane to Jerusalem the next day. They packed up their camels and it took them a while. And the, the real hint, the real clue that they got there afterwards was when, when Herod, when King Herod got those wise men, he said, now when you find this Messiah, let me know where he is. More than likely, they went to Nazareth, only they were smart enough because they'd been warned. They did it as if they were leaving the country. And then um, um, Herod went to his wise men and he said, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Na or Nazareth, or not Nazareth, but Bethlehem. So what did he do? He went and had every child from two and under killed. Why two and under? Because it had probably been two years since Jesus was born. And then God sent the angel Gabriel back to Joseph and said, Joseph, king's looking for you. Get out. That The gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that these guys just dropped off, those are your funds. Pick up that boy, pick up his mama, and get into Egypt and hide out till Herod's dead. God's got all this planned out. But he knew immediately conflict was going to come. Conflict is a, is a, a natural state of this fallen world. Now, the great news is, it doesn't just mean, Emmanuel, doesn't just mean that Jesus came into the world. It does mean that. 
But when he says God is with us, he's talking to us personally today. When you get up in the morning, Gabriel ought to be on your shoulder saying, God's with you today. In the same way that Jesus had conflict, he had to go through Joseph and Mary to defend him because Jesus was just a child. He couldn't, he didn't, I mean, he was the second person of the Godhead. But remember, he set all that aside. He had to learn to walk. He had to learn to talk. He had to go to school. He had to learn a trade. All of those things he had to do naturally, just like any other man. Well, he couldn't defend himself as a baby. So God dealt with his parents. That's why he picked Joseph. I need a good man to come in here and watch out after Jesus till Jesus gets old enough to watch out over himself. Now, Jesus was quite capable at an early age. He went at 12 into the, to meet with the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the learned men, and he confounded them. I mean, it's something to go in, you know, be a 12-year-old, go into a college with PhDs and confound their wisdom. That's pretty smart. Why? Because he knew the word. He was the word. And he knew what it meant, even then. But he said, hey, it's not my time yet. I'm going to go home, do what mom and dad say, and just bide my time. And he did. Now, when, when we look at this word, it does mean God is with us. Christmas is not about Santa Claus. It's not about gift giving. It's not about good times with the family. Although you can have a lot of fun with Santa. Since we have no children here, I'll just be honest. I remember when we told our kids that Santa wasn't real. Oh, they just burst into tears, cried. You'd have thought oh, I broke, ripped their heart out. Because in their little minds, they thought that means we're not getting presents. I said, no, no, no. There never has been a Santa. Santa didn't just die. Mom and dad have been Santa. Oh, you mean we're still getting presents? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then suddenly, to our amazement, it's amazing when you follow what God says. You quit lying to your kids. To our amazement, they had fun with Santa Claus after that. They were a little afraid of Santa before that time. Now they knew it was just some old guy in a white suit or in a red suit with a white beard. And they went up and sat in his lap and just, you know, hey, this is fun. I know he's not real, but, you know, let's have a little fun with this. They enjoyed it. But that's not what Christmas is about. You can have fun with it. I love giving presents. It was amazing. We had three 20-gallon totes full of presents. I had to take Gina's luggage and put it in the back window. We had, it, it looked like a, you know, a gypsy caravan in our car. When we came home, there was nothing. I mean, we, our trunk was empty and it was overflowing going down to see our grandkids. And then the worst part is if you'd have looked at what my daughter and, and son-in-law and my son and my daughter-in-law got, pff, maybe a third of one tote, the rest was grandkids. I love giving toys and stuff to my grandkids. I love seeing them open them. But that's still not what Christmas is about. I love getting together. I tell you, you know, part of me, you know, and it wasn't the weather because the deep south was not very friendly to us. It was cold and rainy everywhere we went. We really, we, we took the cold weather with us and we brought it back. I didn't really want to take it or bring it back. But it wasn't the weather. But I'm telling you, every time I go see my grandkids, it's all I can do. I want to just call home and say, put a for sale sign up in front of my house. I'm staying. I'm not, I got to stay around these rugrats. I love them too much. I don't want to come home. 
But that's not what Christmas is about. It's great to have family. It's great to give gifts. It's great to have fun. But that's not the meaning. The meaning is Emmanuel. God is in me. God is amongst us. We've got work to do. We've got things to get accomplished. If you read through the rest of Isaiah, Isaiah talks about, look, I crushed the Egyptians and you went into the wilderness. I crushed all the tribes that were in Canaan. But you know what? Every time you kill a giant, a new one pops up. My wife used a phrase with, with Tiffany this week. It, it hit her tickle bone. She, she just laughed. And, and the Gina's statement was, new levels, new devils. But that is scriptural. You're always going to have giants to kill. The meaning of Christmas is when those giants pop their heads up, God is looking at you saying, not now, and not today, and not of this. It shall not stand. God is with you. His anointing will break the yoke. The, they had Assyria, and then Babylon, and then the Greek nation. And God, <clears throat> all through history... They, in fact, the, after the Romans came in and wiped out the temple, they just said, we're done with these Jews. They are a troublesome people. Scatter them to the four winds. And they stayed scattered until 1948. And God said, they've been scattered long enough. Bring them home. And they came home. And a nation was birthed in a day. God's not done with Israel yet. But God is still with us. He's not done with us yet. He's not done with his church yet. He's not done with you individually yet. I don't care how young you are. I don't care how old you are. I don't care what your status in society is. I don't care what you've done, what you haven't done. God is with us. A present help in time of need. Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. If your heart's beating, you're in need. You know, I, I can remember we've been talking about, you know, Sherry and their family. Um, they've got to go to a funeral just a few days before Christmas. It, it kind of puts a damper on your Christmas fun. I've, I, I have to stay on Facebook because of the church, you know, Facebook page and stuff. And I just, I've gotten in the habit. I can tell within three words when somebody's about to get all modeling about, you know, I'm missing so-and-so at Christmas. I've been times in my life where I hated Christmas. I hated the holiday seasons. Holiday seasons were all about loss for a long time. And it can get that way. But that's just a giant you need to kill. Sure, if you've been alive more than a year, you've got loss to deal with. Now, there are situations you go through where it becomes profound and it sometimes becomes life-altering. But it's a giant that God says, this shall not stand. If you will tap into my anointing, if you will say amen to what I'm saying, I'll amen your amen and you'll see things change. There's always something to conquer. But the key is, you're going to believe me, not believe me. That's what God's asking. Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is of sin. When you see yourself slipping over, getting the mully grubs, getting the woe is me's, you need to just stop yourself short and say, Emmanuel, God's with me. God's in this. 
He's already given me a promise. Well, has he given me a promise? If you don't know, get in the book and find it. Find a promise. And then when you read the promise, say, amen. I agree. That's going to be in my life. I don't know how it can do it. I mean, when Gina was laying on that gurney, they had already knocked her unconscious, got a machine breathing for her. She's within moments of dying and nearly died when they went in to put the stent in her heart. Everything in my brain, because I'm, I'm the science teacher. I'm the one that taught anatomy for, for years. I know the function of a heart. And in my brain, I know this is not going to end well, probably. If she comes out of this, she's going to be damaged. She's not going to do much. I laid on one of those tables back in 1998. Massive heart attack. Doctor sat me down weeks later and he says, you're done. You're done working. You're done mowing grass. You're done walking stairs. You're finished. You're only going to live a few more years. Your heart's so damaged, there's nothing we can do with you. And my wife started laughing. And the doctor thought, that's kind of weird. What are you laughing for? She said, you just threw a chunk of meat in front of a roaring lion. He's not going to stand for that. And I didn't. But it's not me. I'm 18 years, almost 19 years out of a massive heart attack. And when I came home, I couldn't do anything. But I said, God, you said that you're my healer. And I'm saying amen. And it's taken time, but I do what I want to do. Now, I'm not up to running marathons, but I wasn't up to running marathons at 20 when I was in good shape. But I still, if God says do it, I tap into his anointing and I do it. And I go on. I, I, I famously, I asked Lester Summerall one time, we were in a meeting together, and he was running younger men under the table. I mean, that man just, he went. And I said, how do you do that? He was in his 70s at the time. And he had men and ministers in their 30s and 40s, and he just, they had to, after three or four days of traveling with him, they had to go home and take a week off. And he just never stopped. I said, how do you do that? He said, when I get up in the morning, I don't ask my body how it's going to do today. I tell it how it's going to do today. And it was interesting. When his wife died, within a few months, he died. And when you ask his kids about it, they will tell you. His statement was, she's gone. I don't want to be here. I've done everything God ever asked me to do. I've finished my ministry. I don't want to live without my wife. And he didn't. He said, I'm finished. And his body just shut down and he was dead within a few months. I mean, he had the power to say, I'm done. I'm out of here. Now, God didn't rebuke him. God didn't say, no, it's not your time. I'm sure if he did, he would have been like Isaiah and say, here I am. God send me. He'd been everywhere and pretty much done everything. But when he was finished, he said, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. And he stepped out and went on home. If it's not a faith, it's coming out of your sin nature. But if it is a faith, Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please him. That's what pleases God. When your circumstances say, yeah, I know it's Christmas. I know everybody's having fun, but you're going to be miserable today. You're lonely. You're sad. You know, Old Testament's very clear. You put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. I don't feel like praising. God didn't ask you if you felt like praising. He said, if you will do this, I will bring your spirits up. And you've got to say, amen. And he says, amen, and then do it. It's through faith and obedience 
that these things change. The fight started when Lucifer fell, and it won't be done until Lucifer goes into the lake of fire. And we're standing as his hands, as his mouthpiece, as his feet, as his people. And he's saying, Emmanuel is real for you today. Not because it's Christmas, but because you are my child. You are in my kingdom. Are you going to amen me and get about your business? Or are you just going to say, no, I'm just not up to this? Well, if you won't believe, you shall not be established. But the opposite is true. If you do believe, then his anointing will break the yoke. His anointing will establish you. And you can do anything and everything he tells you to do. Because it's not you doing it. It's him. He just wants you to get in agreement with him. Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com.